Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, June 13th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Stephanie Armour of The Wall Street Journal. Good morning. Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. And Kimberly Leonard of The Washington Examiner. Good morning. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Also, a scheduling note, next week we'll be in Colorado taping as part of the Aspen Ideas Health Festival. It will happen over the weekend, so we'll post that podcast on Monday, June 24th. Then we'll have a Another show, Thursday, June 27th, as usual. So no pod next week, but two the week after. So I thought we would start this week with an update on congressional efforts to end so-called surprise medical bills. People with insurance get these bills when they inadvertently get care from out-of-network providers or go to out-of-network hospitals and emergencies. There's widespread agreement from consumers and members of Congress from both parties and just about everybody in the healthcare industry that this isn't fair and patients shouldn't be expected to pay what are often enormous amounts. There is less agreement, however, on who should pay if the patients don't. And this week in particular, as Congress seems to be closing in on specific legislation, there's a bipartisan bill in the House, and this is part of an even bigger bipartisan package in the Senate. We saw the various sides, mostly doctors and hospitals versus insurers, starting to go at it. At a hearing at the House Energy and Commerce Committee, Texas Republican Michael Burgess warned the warring groups that if they don't settle on a plan amongst themselves, Congress will do it for them and, quote, you won't like it. (laughs) How likely is Congress to legislate over the Objections of some major donor in the healthcare industry. The, the idea that the bipartisan happiness would sort of dissolve into some stakeholder disagreement is not a surprise, right? It's a familiar pattern for sure. Everybody always, always has an eye on the next election. So even something that has this sort of widespread support could be derailed. It's not a given. It was sort of hard to tell. I actually watched the surprise bills hearing. There have been like three or four, and I've seen three of them, I think. The members, particularly the Republicans, are really, really eager to legislate on this. Is this, I mean, Kimberly, is this like the the health issue they hope that they can go out in 2018 and say, look, we did something to help you on health care? Definitely. Exactly. Especially because the Obamacare repeal and replace effort failed. They said pretty much since after that happened, you know what, we're going to turn our attention to health care costs. And they don't just want to prevent these sort of out-of-pocket medical bills that people end up facing, but they really see this as a transparency issue, as a market failure. And it's, so it's something that they're really going to want to tackle in order to show that they can deliver on health care. You know, they want to get at what is it that is making healthcare costs go up so significantly every single year? Another issue driving this is the White House really wants to see something done on this. The White House came out with its agenda of what it wants in legislation. And I think there's been um, real pressure to get something done from the White House. At the same time, this interesting thing that's that's kind of dangling out there is what potentially could happen with price transparency, um, you know, whether that could potentially negate the need for something le- legislatively is is what I've heard. I, I don't know, but I, I think there's some interesting dynamics behind the scenes on yeah, this one. Yeah, this really does play into, I mean, this has been sort of the Republican, you know, market versus government, the 
really big picture in healthcare debates over the years. Government, uh, the Republicans very much want to let the market work. But Kimberly, as you pointed out, this is a market failure. Um, and one of the things that they say could help the market work is if people had a clue how much things cost before they get them, um, which they don't in this case. That's the whole problem with surprise bills is you don't you often don't you don't choose the out of network provider. There can be the, you know, the anesthesiologist to your in-network surgeon or the lab that, you know, your doctor sends a bill to. I mean, you have you have no way of knowing this. You have no way of knowing how much any of this costs until the bill shows up. And the industry likes this. I mean, this is something that the industry does not want to see changed, even though they're saying which yes, part we of the industry? Because the industry disagrees. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, this is something where, especially hospitals, have been able to to make some real money on. And doctors and these, too, right? Right, especially those that are technically not in network for the hospital. It's been a real money maker. Yes, one. Yeah, it has. And one 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 of the uh, the payer witnesses at the hearing, the Energy and Commerce hearing, said that you know basically paying paying the providers what they want is like setting money on fire. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pretty vivid hearing. Well, we will we will watch. I think there's another hearing next week uh, in the, on the Senate side. But I'll, I'll be interested to see how much this disagreement among the, the, the important stakeholders sort of plays into the overwhelming desire by lawmakers to actually do something about this and the president. I and ha- hasn't also, just a side note, haven't they also mentioned some of the work Kaiser Health News has done on this in terms of the impetus? Yes, or? they have. Thank That's you very sweet. much. Yeah. Uh, this is our, our, our bill of the month. We'll have another bill of the month. Uh, uh, the week after next, and also the the work I should mention that Sarah Cliff, our podcast mate, has done on emergency room billing. There have been, yeah, this is one of those issues where journalism has helped push it a lot. We will stay tuned to that one. Um, there is still more news on the reproductive health front. I thought we'd do kind of a lightning round that includes some follow-ups to stuff we've talked about over the past couple of weeks. Um, first up, Missouri, where the last abortion clinic in the state, the Planned Parenthood in St. Louis, remains open under court order, while the clinic fights with state health regulators. This isn't even part of the very restrictive bill the state passed just a couple of weeks ago, right? What's Alice, what's happening in, in Missouri? Right. So this is an effort. Um, it's, it's sort of more of an enforcement effort by the state to strip the last remaining abortion clinic of its uh, license to, to practice. and Just its license to abortions, right? Not, right. It would, exactly. Not Planned Parenthood wouldn't necessarily close. Yes, but. it is a Planned Parenthood clinic. And if they were stripped of their license, if they lose this court battle, um, they would not shut down entirely. They would still be able to provide other services besides abortions. But but there would be no abortion provider in the entire state. People would have to go out of state, um, which people are already having to travel long distances. And sometimes Missouri's a big state. And sometimes folks around the country already have to go out of state to sometimes access abortions. So uh, this is playing out in court as the challenges to the state's recently passed eight-week ban is also playing out in court. Um, well, back in Washington, the Hyde Amendment, which bars most federal abortion funding, is back in the news. Joe Biden got in some trouble last Last week for saying he supported it, then revising his position. Yet, while pretty much all the top tier of candidates in the presidential race, the Democratic presidential race, say they want to make Hyde go away, the Democratic-controlled House with two Hyde-opposing women uh, representatives leading the House Appropriation Committee and the subcommittee that oversees the Department of Health and Human Services, which is where the Hyde Amendment lives, um, are leaving it in. What is up with that? So there was an amendment backed by a lot of uh, Democratic women to 
get rid of Hyde. Um, and the amendment didn't even get a vote. It was sort of uh, scuttled on a technicality. So I think this is really interesting. There's been a lot of mixed messages. I've been going around Capitol Hill asking people what's going on with this. And there's there's a lot of mixed messages. So there's people who say, oh, the amendment was drafted in a way that that wasn't allowed. It was drafted too broadly because actually the amendment would have done more than get rid of Hyde. It would have guaranteed coverage of abortion in all public health care plans, Medicaid, et cetera, and restricted private plans from uh, excluding abortion coverage. And so it, it wasn't just a repeal of Hyde. Um, and that really would have been out of order. They, these are spending right. bills where, where things have to be immediately. But they could have drafted it to be in order if they yeah. wanted to, <laughs> because the original Hyde Amendment was a budget writer. And so it would just be a budget writer canceling out a budget writer. <laughs> and they were also saying that, oh, we can't go through with this Hyde repeal because then the president would veto the entire bill. Well, the president's already threatening to veto the entire bill over some other provisions that they're passing, including undoing the Title X role from the administration, undoing the conscience regulations from the administration, undoing the Mexico City policy, which concerns abortions abroad and fun- U.S. funding. Why Hyde? I guess the only logical thing I can think of is that Democrats don't want to put some of their members in a difficult position and have a roll call vote on that, although they're having votes on these other things I just mentioned that are tangential to abortion. So very interesting. And the Biden flip really came at a bad time for House Democrats because here's their first opportunity to prove how committed they are to Mm -hmm. abortion rights. And so, you know, all of a sudden they're facing this budget. They're blaming Republicans. They're blaming Trump for why they won't do it. But guess what? They're passing a lot of other reproductive rights uh, provisions that the president has already said he'll veto, as Alice mentioned. Mm-hmm. So um, it's really putting them in a difficult position. It's going to lead to attacks from Republicans who will say, well, look, obviously Hyde has widespread support. So why would we not continue to put it in every spending bill? This budget isn't even going to probably in all likelihood make it to the president's desk for, to be vetoed or signed regardless, because um, the Senate is not looking like it'll it'll uh, do its part and mark up a full budget for them to reconcile together. And And also we have to, we will talk about this ad nauseum as it gets closer. There are these spending caps that Congress has to deal with this year. Right. There's going to have to, and and the debt ceiling, there's going to have to be some big overall budget spending bill agreement at some point. I just, it's funny, I've been, I've been sort of watching this in kind of a bemused way because there have been so many fights about the Hyde Amendment also recently. um, But the one thing about the Hyde Amendment as it lives in the labor HHS spending bill is that in theory, it can be taken out any year. It would have to be, it is hard to do it actually on the floor because of the House rules, it would probably have to come at committee level. That's Mm -hmm. where you can actually put things in and take them out. So if it was, if they really were going to try to take it out, it would have been one of these very abortion rights backing members, you know, either Nita Lowy, the chairman of the the full appropriations committee, or Rosa DeLora, the chairman of the HHS subcommittee. um, And they didn't do it. And yet we saw other health bills that were stopped in the last couple of years over attempts to make Hyde permanent. So there's this sort of push and pull. They have to redo it every year. So at some point, they feel like they would be able to take it out. I think they just decided that this was not the point where they thought they could be able to take it out with a Republican Senate and a Republican president. But they also decided not to even try just as a message. Yes. um, Which is interesting because they're sending that message in rhetoric, but they're not sending it in, in votes. Which they could. All right. 
Um, meanwhile, we've talked a lot about states trying to make abortion harder to get, uh, but we had three states this week enact legislation that seeks to expand abortion rights. The Democratic governors of Illinois and Maine and the Republican governor of Vermont all signed bills aimed at protecting the legality of abortion or expanding who can provide abortions. Uh, and remember, we recently saw the Democratic governor of Louisiana side a bill that would dramatically restrict abortion. So is this not a completely partisan thing or are these outliers. There's been a lot of interesting polling also on abortion recently and mostly showing that the very strict bans that have just been passed are pretty unpopular, including among independents and democratic messages against these abortion bans are really resonating with people. And so I think that it does somewhat cross party lines, although a lot of the country is and will continue to be deeply, deeply opposed to abortion and will not sway. I think none of this is really surprising. Um, you would expect kind of more um, liberal-leaning states to do this in reaction. I think what we're increasingly seeing is sort of what the President Trump actually said that he um, saw at one point with abortion access, which is that it would um, greatly depend on states. And I think you're already seeing a lot of that happen with kind of the same on the macro level what's happening with health care is that increasingly it's becoming uh, state driven. Although in the case of, of Roe v. Wade, if Roe were to be overturned, even though Roe made abortion legal in all 50 states, overturning it wouldn't make it illegal in all 50 states. It would say to each state, right. what you do you want to do? You could ban it or not. And that's yeah. in fact what, uh, what a lot of these bills are about. They're about yep. if and when Roe gets overturned, that mm-hmm. abortion will either stay legal or become illegal in these Depending states. Depending on the state. Exactly. Right. Although the main one was interesting because it was less about that and more about making it more accessible now in um, rural parts of the state, which is most of right. the state. By saying that you don't have to be a doctor to perform abortions, right. you can be a physician a nurse, assistant yeah. or a nurse practitioner, mm-hmm. which California did a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. I think mm-hmm. Maine is the fourth or fifth state to to actually do this. To um, But the other two, the, the Vermont um, and Illinois bills, were, were expansive. We declare that as a state, uh, abortion is a woman's right. We're starting to see those sort of in anticipation of what the Supreme Court might or might not do. Okay, finally, on the reproductive health front, we had a federal judge in Texas, the very same judge who in December ruled the entire Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional, uh, basically strike down the requirement in the health law that insurance cover contraceptives for women. Now, the allowance for religious organizations and those with moral objections to providing birth control has been litigated almost continuously since 2011. It went up to the Supreme Court. At the time, there were only eight members. They were divided. They sent it back down to the lower courts. But now Judge Reed O'Connor has basically said the entire contraceptive mandate is basically an option for employers. This has flown way under the radar, partly because it's really complicated. Um, but it could, in theory, have some significant impact. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I mean, you were looking into it's, this. What it is, is that it sets up a really confusing situation of, of sort of dueling decisions out there. I mean, you've got the, the case in Pennsylvania, the judge's decision in Pennsylvania, which then also stands, which is saying that, you know, that this this can't be the case. And then you have judge in Texas who's saying that, you know, this injunction apply, that this applies to everybody. And, you know, you just had a hearing last week in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals where the administration was trying to deal with an injunction there. And, and so basically what's happening is you're just having two very different decisions and rulings out there. But the problem with the one in the Texas judge is that there really is no body to appeal, um, which casts a big question over what is going to be the state of play. Which and I don't bizarre. think it's been answered. Yeah. yeah I it's mean, really bizarre. So, so Nevada asked to inter- intervene right. in the case and, and the he judge didn't, just didn't respond. Right. Just totally didn't respond. Um, 
I mean, I don't think it's surprising considering the this judge's previous rulings on elements that this would be the decision. But the fact that there are now dueling decisions out there that deal with the injunction really raises question marks about what is this what is the status? Yeah, and whether I mean in in theory under under the judge's ruling, an employer could just say, Right. I don't want to provide birth control. I don't believe in it. I'm right. Not I have a moral objection. I have a religious religious objection. And he's saying yes, they can do that. Whereas you have in Pennsylvania, there's a the injunction saying you can't. So what's an employer to do? <laughs> and and um unlike the original Obamacare conception of who could get an exemption. Now it's basically anybody. It's right. any corporation of any size, for profit, nonprofit, and it doesn't have to be a religiously affiliated. Depending on which, depending on which judges' decision. Exactly. You, so I, I and before mean, before people start to write, I knew there right. was there the, the the one where they the Supreme Court split four four was on this religious accommodation, but there was also the Hobby Lobby case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that the court decided that said if you have some if you're, employers, some yeah. employers like closely held. Texas decision is much broader than Hobby Lobby. It's basically mm-hmm. any organization, nonprofit, profit. It's very vast in its scope. So, I mean, are we going to see a huge corporation with thousands of employees do this? Or is it? I, that's what I think. Yeah. I think we're like waiting now to see what, what, what the happens. impact is. Yeah. yeah. It's, well, it's, Hobby Lobby isn't small. No. No. It's a no. huge chain yeah. for sure. Yeah. So, but yes, I know. I mean, that's sort of the point. It's, uh, I, I, I don't know what employment lawyers are telling companies right now. Yeah. Kind yeah. of anybody can do anything at this point and have a have a federal court to, to point at. Saying, right. Well, he right. said it was OK. Right. 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 All right. Well, finally this week, um, it's something I really wanted to talk about for a while. And Stephanie, you wrote a really interesting story about healthcare sharing ministries. Um, first, tell us what they are and then yeah. tell us what you found. Um, these are basically like the old-fashioned mutual aid societies. People join. Uh, usually they almost all of them have a religion base to them. And you pay money each month uh, kind of with this leap of faith that your medical bills – Literally a leap of faith. <laughs> yes. Your medical bills will be covered um, by other members. I mean, each vary in terms of kind of elements of the way they're run. But by and large, I mean, they're not insurance. Um, they don't cover pre- existing conditions. They don't cover abortion. They often don't cover preventative care like mammograms. And a lot of them don't cover birth control. Right, right. Um, A lot of them put caps on how much they'll pay. But the interesting thing about them is I I wrote about these shortly after the ACA, but they've exploded in membership since the ACA um, for a number of reasons. One, people who joined ministries, sharing ministries, were exempt from the requirement that they pay a penalty if they don't have coverage. But they've also increasingly stepped up their marketing. Um, but now they're making, you know, if you look at that, the revenue for some of these is millions of dollars and they've grown so big that at the same time you're seeing more state investigations, more consumer complaints. So the story just really looked at what those complaints are and the fact that they're increasing along with the swell in membership. Growth. And what are some of the complaints? Um, you know, people saying that their bills weren't paid, that they had a hard time reaching somebody at the organization. Bills were paid late. There was confusion. Um, some people obviously still not understanding that it's not insurance. But I, that wasn't even the most of it. A lot of them were just saying that the bills were being paid or paid late. The healthcare sharing ministries I talked with said that, you know, they do have a long, they let people know how long it's going to take to pay a bill. Um, some said that they had 
uh, phone bank difficulties at the time. But if nothing else, it's something state regulators, especially insurance commissioners, are watching as they get this big. I mean, I remember when they put this into the ACA and the idea was that, that they already existed and they were trying to sort of grandfather them, that there are a lot of they, – they were basically religious groups and they were – they are, you know, where people share their medical bills. And if somebody, you know, sort of like the community, if somebody gets sick, everybody else's dues um, would, would pay for them. And then when that person got sick, there would be money to, to pay for them. But now they're sort of turning into these quasi-unregulated businesses. Well, and the other thing is people's feelings about these are so strong. Like people are ardent supporters on one hand, and many state lawmakers and legislatures have moved to protect them from regulation. And then there's insurance commissioners themselves who are concerned but also don't want to anger the supporters and anger the lawmakers. So it's also this really interesting issue where there's just such heated emotion and feeling about these organizations. I think one thing to kind of keep in mind here is that, you know, people initially, I think, were very, you know, attracted to the idea of, you know, being part of a religious group. Um, but now a lot of people are just priced out of the Affordable Care Act yes. plans. And so they feel like they have no recourse except to do this. It might not be as expansive as the Affordable Care Act, but I've talked to people who basically said to me, look, it's between my rent and my health insurance. Yes. And they feel like they can try to make it work. They feel like so, something 30... is better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And they're right. about 30% less generally than insurance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So for the people, there are millions of people who don't receive subsidies under the Affordable Care Act because that cap off is lower than people think. Um, You really don't have to be really wealthy to not qualify for health insurance help under the Affordable Care Act. So a lot of people are just sort of driven out of the market and they try to find something where they can feel a little bit of protection. Right. And and also these groups are advertising significantly at the same time. But they're different. I mean, we should say they're different from the short term limited duration plans. Right. They are. Which is another group that's doesn't offer, that's cheaper, doesn't offer yeah, complete coverage, yeah. and that's advertising heavily. Right, <laughs> right. All right. Well, that is as much time as we have for the news this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Alice, why don't you start this week? Sure. So uh, piece in the New York Times, uh, Planned Parenthood to host Women's Health Forum for 2020 Democrats. Uh, This is coming up in just a couple weeks, and I think it is very interesting. And I am really looking forward to how much they will nail down the candidates on specifics because we're seeing a lot of very similar rhetoric and promises coming from the Democrats on sort of reproductive health, abortion access front. And we're even seeing some candidates roll out specific policy plans. Um, So that's interesting. I think so far, some of the wrong questions have been asked on the campaign trail. I mean, really, so do you support the Hyde Amendment or not is important, but presidents don't, you know, it's really if Congress sent you a budget that got rid of Hyde, would you sign it is the correct question because the president on his or her own cannot (laughs) do anything with the Hyde Amendment. I'm very interested in whether this forum will really drill down on what differences there are, if any, between the candidates. Joe Biden is participating, so we will see if there will be maybe a repeat of the Hyde Amendment thing where he's asked about something from his past uh, career in Congress where he was very conservative on um, abortion and now Times have changed. The party's changed. Will he change on other policies as well? So, In 1992, I wrote a story about how Al Gore, who was then the vice presidential nominee, mm-hmm. had flipped on abortion. Yep. And a lot of people got really angry with me. <laughs> 
Democrats Worth used to asking. be, yeah, even even some now liberal Democrats used to be much more conservative on this issue. And Biden has been sort of complaining lately about the press coverage and saying, you know, it's not about what's way in the past. Like, let's think about the future. But I mean, these questions are about the future. They're, they're about if you are president, what will you do? Where do you stand? So I think it's completely valid to ask. <laughs> Kimberly. I picked a piece from Politico by Arthur Allen called Lost in Translation. Epic goes to Denmark. He talks about the rocky rollout that they had with installing their electronic health care records. And, and Epic is the largest, aren't they the largest? The, yes. um, um, the, the, so. the behemoth electronic health record that many, if not most, hospitals in the United States use. Yeah, yeah. And it's been difficult even here in the U.S. And so he talks a lot about some of the um, literal translation issues of how certain, you know, healthcare wording is used in the U.S. and how that's different than in Denmark. That story is is quite a read because I know, obviously, here in the U.S., you hear a lot of complaints about electronic health records and how cumbersome they are. I can't imagine trying to translate it into another language. <laughs> it's a great story idea. It is, it, yeah. It's a great he story, got a fellowship too. for yeah. that. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I have a story by Rebecca Hersher at uh, NPR. You may be stressing out your dog. Yes, hard-hitting news. <laughs> Um, Basically, this looked at a study that found that when owners of dogs were stressed out, when their uh, cortisol levels were high, that it was mirrored by their dogs. And so the takeaway being that if you are stressed or anxious as a dog owner, that that may be picked up by and your dog is so um, kind of in connection with you um, that they also will be stressed. Although, okay, fine. I am the owner of, <laughs> yes, four dogs. Do not ask why. Um, and I, I was also wondering the opposite. Like, I have a neurotic constantly barking dog. So this dog is highly stressed. What about my stress levels? Are they going up? Probably. Constant barking alone would do it. Exactly. (laughs) Like, I mean, you know, are we affecting our dogs or are they affecting us? But I mean, it's interesting. I mean, they're it's a small study, and it, but it was it was interesting. They they took the people's hair and dogs' hair because that way you can track the the, the cortisol, cortisol levels over levels, time, right? Yeah. yeah, and I would just love to track mine compared to my dog that is neurotic and just see. I'm sure there's a place you can volunteer for the next study. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was, I was sort of amused by this because I show my dogs in performance competition, and about sixty percent, if not more, of competition prep is making sure that even though you're nervous, you don't want it to translate to the dog. And, right. And it well, happens. now you, there's dogs that often show up at the Kaiser Health News site. I'm wondering, you know, do they get stressed when their owners are on deadline? <laughs> you have a bunch of stressed dogs at deadline question. time. They look pretty happy on Twitter. <laughs> they do. Yeah, they're, they're usually pretty happy in the office. All right. Well, mine is not so, so upbeat. It's from the Washington Post. It's called In Alabama, where lawmakers banned abortion for rape victims. Rapists' parental rights are protected by Emily Wax Thibodeau. And it turns out that Alabama is one of only two states, the other is Minnesota, that does not have a law allowing victims of sexual assault to terminate the parental rights of the rapist. Such a law actually was considered in the legislature this year, not as part of Alabama's uh, abortion law, and it was defeated. Uh, The story is mostly about an Alabama woman who was repeatedly raped by her uncle as a young teen, had several children by him, and is now fighting him for custody. So if you think that victims of rape or incest don't actually get pregnant, think again. Um, So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. At Steph Armour 1. At Alice Olstein. 
at Leonard KL. We'll be back in your feed on Monday, June 24th. In the meantime, be healthy.